Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. Now available on YouTube when you head to youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith. That's youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith. This week, I sit down with my friend Ian Patterson. His life story is next. The latest offering from the great folks at American Pride Roasters Coffee is a blend named after the one and only Thomas Paine, a true hero of the American Revolution. Did you know that Thomas Paine almost never made it to America to begin with? He survived a nasty transatlantic voyage where five passengers died of typhoid fever after the ship's water supplies were dangerously bad. His friend Benjamin Franklin, perhaps you've heard of him, he had to physically carry pain off the ship because he was so sick upon his arrival in America. Well, after a six-week recovery, Payne was ready to help the American cause for freedom as the editor of the Pennsylvania Magazine. Well, if you believe as Thomas Paine did when he said, we have it in our power to begin the world over again, well, then begin your journey with the Thomas Paine blend from APR Coffee. It features 100% dark roasted Robusta beans, and like its namesake, Dave Matthews over at APR feels the Age of Reason blend is too strong and borders on dangerous. I just love that. If you want a wildly strong cup and you don't fear losing your soul, click the Age of Reason option at AmericanPrideRoastersCoffee.com. Use promo code ATM at checkout for 10% off. That's APRCoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Ian Patterson is a hero. I'm looking forward to introducing you to him on this week's episode. Oh, and by the way, he has a very weird injury that rivals many of my own. So be listening for that one. Let's get this week's At The Mic conversation started right now with Ian Patterson. Ian, what's up, man? Not much, man. Thanks for having me. Great to be in here with you. Okay, so... It's been a while. <laughs> it has been. We've been trying and trying and trying to make this happen. And something comes up, you know, it's just the way of the world. It's just busy lives, man. So I appreciate you making time and coming all the way over here because I caught you in between business trips. Like, literally, the one day you have, you give it to me, man. God bless you, man. I'm sorry to drag you away from the family on the only time you got. No, it's fine, man. It's fine. Like you said, we've been trying to do this for months now, and... I just bit the bullet. I'll see that. I've seen the family all day. I'll see the family all night. So it's good to be here with you. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. You were born. And by the way, the way I came to know who you were was through your efforts with Operation Pineapple in Afghanistan. That's correct. Task Force Pineapple. My gosh, man. Can we, we gotta, we will talk about that because that is amazing what you guys did over there. But you and I have been corresponding and and we met up you know and had a chat once uh and so i thought this guy i gotta get him behind a microphone and let's talk about his life so you were born in detroit michigan yep lived there was very young when i left and moved and lived in a small town up in northern michigan up on lake huron of about 300 people small town called harrisville oh, sounds beautiful dude it was gorgeous yeah and it, if, as far as growing up it was the best way that i can describe growing up no worries didn't have to worry oh. about what you have to worry about as a parent today people snatching your kids and you know we were kind of free-range kids so to speak and uh you know old school midwest and yeah 
depending on which house you lived in from your friends, if you got in trouble, you took a butt whooping from each parent all the way, <laughs> oh, no. all the way to your house. <laughs> oh, no. So what's it like there today? Because so many places where people, my hometown of Marietta, Georgia included, have changed not necessarily for the better since our childhood. How about uh, Harrisville? How, how's that? You know, Harrisville, Harrisville's Harrisville. Um, I got a few friends left there that I still keep in touch with. From what I understand, I've not been back since 1998. Okay. But from what I understand, it's very depressed. It's the poorest county in the state of Michigan. And, you know, for its pure beauty in the lake and the forest, there's not much else there. It's more family family money, and that's about it, and uh-huh. the occasional tourist money the two to three months of summer they get a year. I gotcha. So how old were you when you moved to Destin, Florida? I was 13. Vastly different worlds. Vastly going I, I from... I can't think of a difference more extreme than those two places. No, going from basically southern Canada to the deep south, yeah. for lack of better words, is, uh, yeah, it was, it was a culture shock. Uh-huh. So... Which did you enjoy more? You know, as a, in my younger years, I I really enjoyed Michigan. And, you know, when you, you've known people since you were born until, you know, 13, it was a tough transition. Um, my older years, as I look back, Florida was a far better opportunity and a far better life than what I could have had in Michigan. Mm. So okay. yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a touch. It's a touch point. You know, the hunting and fishing I miss in Michigan. But then again... The warm weather and the deep sea fishing in Florida, you know, you, it's just, you can't compare it. Right, right. You're an only child like myself. Do you wish that you had siblings? Because I sure do. Hey, you know, I don't. Mm. And I say that, and I strictly say that because of how I grew up and in such a rural area. Mm-hmm. All of my friends were like family anyway. I mean, I, there's a guy here in the Dallas area who I've known since I was two years old. And, you know, we grew up like family. Huh. In such a small town, there's really no other way. Oh, that's cool. You had mentioned hunting earlier in the conversation. I love your earliest memory. Is your mom shooting a deer from the bathroom window? You got to set this scene for us, man. So <laughs> three or four years old and, you know, deer season in Michigan short, two weeks long, I believe at the time. Wow. Talking 1980, 1981. Wow. And you're allowed one deer and you're lucky to get the one deer. And all of a sudden I hear the bathroom window slide open and I'm just waking up and I hear the, the whip snap of that rifle go off. (laughs) And next thing you know, my mom's putting me in snow gear and we're going outside to dress the deer. Oh, wow. (laughs) That is awesome. One shot knocked it down, huh? Oh yeah. I mean, it was feet, you know, not, not, not not yards it was feet away from where she pulled the trigger okay. I mean, there was no chance that deer was getting out of there <laughs> all right uh so i mean they're rodents right i mean that's effectively what they are right Am exactly I, I mean so they're pests man they destroy stuff so people that have uh this because i love animals but my gosh there there is a line and the deer are on the shoot to kill side of that line agreed agreed (laughs) you know and unfortunately the midwest and some other states have so heavily restricted the populations right that now they're dying off with the um oh it's a neurological disease chronic wasting and it's now for it's now making its way from the white tailed deer into the mule deer in the mountains and into the elk and it's really affecting kind of the natural cycle so hopefully we see a bit more turn towards mm. the management of it right. than just the big game portion of it. So lived the first half of your childhood in Michigan, moved to Florida. 
explain to us, take us on your college tour, how you ended up at the University of Missouri, then you went out to Colorado, and then eventually here in Texas. Well, Man, yeah. I've been all over. So college, I went to University of Missouri to play football. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. What position? I was a safety. All right, man. I, I went as a tall, skinny, tight end, and then they moved me to wide receiver and oh. then realized I like to hit people and move me to safety. So wait a minute, because you're a large guy, and I mean that in a sense of muscular, okay? You don't, to me, just at first glance, make me think safety. I, I thought you were going to say linebacker or or fullback or something. I don't know. Am I wrong? Yeah. So at 18, I was 175 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> right. And didn't really put on weight till I was 19, 20. So. Okay. And by the time I finished playing, I was more in a linebacker kind of hybrid, kind of strong safety spot. Okay. But early on, I mean, I was just tall, skinny, and fast. And, and then you hit the weight room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot, a I'll lot. say. <laughs> yep. And then really turned my focus back to rugby, which kind of put me in a bigger okay. position as well. Oh, my gosh. We got so much to talk about. So you went to Missouri to play football. What were you studying at the time? Yeah. <laughs> Started as pre-law. Almost failed out my first year. Oh, my. Decided I didn't like to read that much, and it wasn't where I wanted to go, and ended up in uh, meteorological studies. So I was a weatherman. Yeah. I love this. Yep. <laughs> it's like, okay, now i got to start writing stuff down. I'm going to start forgetting all the questions I have for you. So wait a minute. Uh, did you end up majoring in meteorology then? I did. I did. And did you go on to be a weatherman? I did, in, in a way, in a way. So, you know, it wasn't what I was planning on doing. Right. I ended up going back to grad school in Australia, studied tourism, marketing, and management. And um, September 11th rolled around. I was in Australia going to school and walked into the U.S. Embassy on September 12th and signed up for the military. That's how you... And ended up being uh, combat weather for the Air Force. Oh, wow. So that, that was my... Uh, professional experience in uh, meteorology and weather. Oh my. Okay. So we skipped through because I just kind of dragged you into the future here. You went to, what? where is University of Ballarat? Ballarat? University? Yeah, Ballarat's in uh, Ballarat, Victoria, Australia. Oh, that's, okay. So that's yep. where you so were that, there. Okay. An hour and a half north of Melbourne. Now I got you. Okay, cool. Yep. Very good. So yeah, I didn't actually drag you too far in the future there. That worked out nicely. Um, okay. So you're now in the armed forces mm -hmm. and where are you traveling now with them so my two main locations i was stationed just down the road from here in shreveport louisiana okay for all my training and then ended up um in lake and heath england wow yep. attached to a big f-15 unit there and then uh went up to um, iceland for a little bit to bring a helicopter uh sf uh helicopter unit down from uh, Keflavik down to Lake and Heath. They were closing a unit up there and moving it down to Lake and Heath and basically supported the helicopters okay. uh, in England and spent the majority of my time in the UK minus um, deployments. So in a few uh, NASA assignments in France and Spain, but I spent almost my whole time in Europe. Where were your deployments? Where did those take you? I did Qatar, I did Iraq, and did Afghanistan. So I just don't know your story well enough to just assume here were you then doing weather stuff? I was. A, okay, okay. So I was. Is there an okay, with computers and, and, and models and stuff, were you ever like, 
Why do I need to actually go to where the action is to, to do the weather? So you have a lot of different ways that that you can look at it. So there's kind of three different um, phases. And well, there used to be three different phases in weather. There's two now. Um, you have your standard Air Force weather, which is, you know, the best way to look at it is from surface to 50,000 feet. Okay. And you can you can do that from a computer and you can forecast, you know, standoff distances for the jets, for the aircraft. You can form do bombing forecast, uh, flight weather forecast, pretty much 100% from the computer. Okay. You'll get feedback from the jets and things like that, so you can adjust. Then you have your um, combat weather, which is basically surface to 500 feet. And in a lot of cases, you need to be on the ground wow. and in the arena uh-huh. for that. Um, with that, we also had special operations weather and tactics which would be attached to the Green Berets and different ODA groups, a Ranger Battalion. And you're on the ground, you're in with a team, you are forward as forward can be. I mean, a couple of prime examples that mo- most folks don't know about. Um, one of the guys wounded at, from Black Hawk Down in Somalia yeah. was an Air Force weather guy. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's it's a pretty in- integral, you know, everything is based around weather. Right. You know, you do riverine forecast if you got tanks and things like that. You know, the ground gets too soft, you sink a tank uh, and get a tank stuck. You get a tank stuck, you're in trouble. Um, helicopter aviation, jump aviation, you know, they want to know the levels, the winds through the levels, you know, same with bombing. It's, it's, it touches every piece of military operations almost. I bet it does. That's fascinating, dude. So I realize that your experiences over there, it's impossible for you to encapsulate them to someone like me, all the stuff you went through. But if you had to sum up describing what it was like over there in just, you know, a, a, a brief conversation like this. I mean, what is your takeaway? Because my follow-up to that would be, at what point did you look and see what was happening more recently and say, oh my gosh, I've got to get involved? You know, it's kind of, and it depends on the front, right? Iraq was total chaos followed by total chaos and continued in chaos. You know, the Iraqis and that portion of the world through history, if you look at history, you know, he who wields the biggest sword is in control. Mm -hmm. And that's their mentality. Sadly, our form of government and freedom isn't for everybody. Mm. Um, On the other side in Afghanistan, it was total chaos and utter peace. And what I mean by that is I was located mostly in the Northeast, Korangal Valley, Pesh River Valley, Kamdash, Jalalabad, some pretty heavy fighting. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, I would get stuck out in some areas that were the most peaceful places on earth, on mountain ranges, wow. by lakes, um, rivers that, and I tell people this to the every day who ask me about it, if I could ever go back and it was stable to travel like it was in the 70s, I'd buy the first ticket. Wow. Because it's that beautiful and that amazing of a country. And the people just want peace. They just want to be left alone. Mm-hmm. There's tribes that we encountered didn't even really know who we were or where we were from. They are wow. that isolated and remote from reality. It was mid, it was pre-medieval times how far they were still living behind the bell wow. curve. And but they were happy living on their side of technology, everything, all that stuff, communication. They had none of it. They, you know, they lived on their side of the mountain and that's where they stayed. There just seems like just sitting here 
amidst the chaos of a first world nation such as the United States here in 2022, the, the way you describe that, I mean, there is a certain draw for me just sitting here thinking, man, that's that's how I want to live, you know. But I, I don't, I couldn't handle it for more than five minutes, obviously. But still, there's that there's that attraction for sure. Yeah, and it, the funny thing is, a lot of these places, the only place that had electricity was a mosque. And the only ones who could read were the uh, the leaders of the mosques. It does sound like pre-medieval yeah. times. Yeah, I mean, it was purely, that was it. Huh. So it was, it, was, it was very interesting, and, you know, I, I, respect, I, I respect my time there. Mm-hmm. You know, we fought a good fight. We were there for the right reasons. Yeah. You know, as all wars, they get political and get out of hand, and... Mm-hmm. That one just kept going and going and going down the rabbit hole further yeah. and further and further. Sure. So you come back to the States. Um, how long after your time over there, how much longer did you serve? I spent my whole time overseas. So my nearly 10 years, I was overseas. Okay, okay. And when I when I moved back to the U.S., I was out. Okay. So I separated from a base on foreign soil. And when I came back to the U.S., I was fully out. Oh, wow. Good. Yeah. Okay. So... When did you end up at Colorado Tech? Was that after Afghanistan? It was while I was in it. <laughs> Randomly, I was actually doing a degree while I was in Afghanistan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's funny. There's when I, I let was, you do that, huh? Well, it was all, it was all online. Uh-huh. And when there's utter chaos and, like I said, utter chaos and total peace, when there's total peace, there's nothing else to do. Hmm. So How's I was, the internet connection for distance learning? I mean, it was <laughs> in fine. Afghanistan, it was fine at the bases, yeah. and, and I had a I had satellite, uh-huh. so we could just uh, ping right in. And okay, it, it was you know exponentially different than it was now. It wasn't zooms. It wasn't yeah. you know it was a recording you listened to. Uh huh. But it was you know it it worked. It okay. worked enough. Uh huh. Yeah. So so what got you to Baylor then? <sighs> that was was that in person or was that online? I do both I okay. do both I'm still finishing up at Baylor oh okay um you know I, I had no intention to go back to school I was done uh you know it used to be a program that you could give your family your benefits and when I tried to give my wife we've only been married a couple of years um my benefit they said well you had to declare this when you were getting out and separating from the military so I had all this additional VA benefit that to use so I said, well, let's find the best school I can get into and nice. have a whack at it. And, you know, Baylor ranks in top 20 pretty much across across the country in business school. And, uh, you know, it's close. It's got a great a, a great track record of education. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but just just taking a step back, I would think just what I know about you is that you enjoy travel and you enjoy learning. I do. Is that fair? I do. Okay. But on the same side, I hate school. Right, right. Okay, okay. <laughs> then explain what it is you do now. So I've been kind of long story short, I've been in hospitality for the better half since I've been out of the military and just decided, you know, this last trip out of town that I'm done working in corporate America and I'm mm. going to spin up my own uh, hospitality organization. Good for you, man. It's, you know, I know the ins and outs of it. I've seen the pitfalls. I've, I've made a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of money in the past. (laughs) Um, and it's just time, you know, I see some things that aren't changing in the industry that need to be changed and you're the guy to do it. I feel it's time to jump in and do it. I like it. I like it. So, so then you've, I don't want to use the word abandoned, but I can't think of a better word here. Have you completely abandoned the world of meteorology that you originally majored in? Oh yeah. Uh I, I've been, I, (laughs) 
the day I ste- I left the military is the last time I looked at the weather for the most part. <laughs> you know, I'll have people call me and ask me what I think, and I'm like, I, I to be honest, I don't even look at it anymore. Yeah, I, I probably forgotten more than I learned. Yeah, right, right. So, take us to the heroic work you did with Afghanistan as the chaos unfolded late last summer. You know, that was uh, interesting. Had no intention of getting involved. Um, I kept some relationships in, in Afghanistan. You know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, we're there to fight a war, but you become very close with a lot of the locals. And they become family to you, you become family to them. And kept in touch with a handful of guys. Um, and I got involved. I, I reached back to the story. We had three brothers who cut our hair in Jalalabad and for a dollar. Mm. And you got a haircut, a shave, and a back massage where they, where they beat you to death <laughs> uh, for a dollar. Wow. And these three brothers, I think they range from like 16 to 21 in age. And it was funny if, if you didn't tip them at least 10 or $20, a guy would follow you out and you get roughed up by a couple of the other soldiers who are on the, on the fob. Americans. But, uh, yeah. Because you took, there was a couple that you took care of. And, yeah. um, uh, I had heard, I had tried to reach out to another contact that I had. I couldn't get a hold of them, but I had heard through the grapevine that, the three brothers were learned to have been employees for the U.S. Air Base and were pulled out in front of their family and hung. And that's when I started to jump in and get really involved. Yeah. Picked up a couple of translators that we had over there who were trying to get out. Started working with a Canadian guy whose uncle, and I'm still working this one to this day, um, who, and these are just my personal stories, obviously, Task Force Pineapple on a whole was much bigger, um, who ran the rural development for Afghanistan and the UN, Afghani National, but um, really got involved um, with Task Force Pineapple through a buddy of mine, Zach, who was a former Green Beret, was who worked with Scott Mann, but was the mastermind of getting the guys. Scott Mann had the idea. Uh, Zach was the mastermind behind how to get the guys out and how to get them onto the airfield and get them onto a jet to get them out. What started with one person, they were trying to get one high value target out, turned into thousands. Task Force Pineapple has changed their direction now. Um, We've kind of turned it into Operation Recovery, which I'm on the board of directors for now. And Op Recovery is taking on humanitarian and the aid, humanitarian aid that's going in and still trying to get people out. Kind of a good segue is we are also, we ju- our board just approved funding to go to kind of Poland, Romania, and Moldova. They're on the Ukrainian border right. for medical supplies wow. and to set up uh, medical facilities for the Ukrainians coming out. We will not send money into Ukraine because of the corruption mm-hmm. and not knowing where the money's going, but as long as we can get the money to where we need it and su- send over supplies and get them to the medical facilities, uh, that's what we're going to do to kind of help this new front out. It, it would seem like, and I apologize for being naive here, but it would seem like with something like helping out with Ukrainians and and using European countries as kind of a base of operations, that would seem much more, I guess, feasible for an individual with your group to actually be on the ground there helping out in person. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Okay. 
So with the Afghanistan situation and Task Force Pineapple, I'm just trying to imagine, were you guys doing all of this stuff long distance, almost flying blind, or did you have people, or I guess Americans, did anybody go over there and... and I just can't imagine trying to run such a large-scale rescue operation from the other side of the world. We did it all from here. Unreal. And the way we were able to do it was with our connections over a 20-year war. And, you know, everybody says relationships, relationships, relationships. Mm. And it was 20 years of relationships that were built between different people, different organizations. You know, I kind of got pulled into it. Yeah, I was helping a few people, but... I was a guy who knew a guy yeah, and yeah. could connect. I could pull money in. I could connect people to the right people. Hmm. Um, you know, the guy, the, I'm the guy who knows a guy type thing. And that that's really how we did it. Um, and a lot of it, I tell you, it's, it was surreal and it was movie-like. Um, Taliban rolls in, takes over. Biden says, we're done. We're, we're leaving everybody and we're out. Well, there's no support at that point. Mm-hmm. We were getting money in, can't say how, but we were getting money in legally and we were moving it through a clinic. We would have women and children of the family members go to the clinic for a doctor's appointment Mm. because we knew the Taliban wouldn't mess with the women and children or their medications. So instead of giving pills, they would give vials with Afghanis in it. And when I say it's (laughs) movie-like, I mean, you don't get any more, but it, it was that cat. It's it's that cat and mouse with the Afghanis. Wow. Or with the Taliban, so to speak. Yeah. And I can pull up. I'm still in message chats with people who are getting notices from the Afghani police daily to show up and basically be beheaded. Mm-hmm. Um, that you just hide the ball, find the ball type right. type situation. Are you at liberty to discuss how many souls you rescued from there? You know, I don't know the exact number. Mm-hmm. I know we're over 2,500. Mm. And like I said, there's still about 6,000 that we are working with. Um, you know, we pulled a bunch of Americans out. And obviously, there's a bunch of other groups doing the same thing, too. So I do know that the number of Americans that were left over there was extremely understated. Yeah. And it sounds like we've gotten almost all of the Americans out. And now it's really working um, for the high value. You know, we've been working on getting the women's rugby team out, the women's soccer team out, because they're targeting those folks because right. they're completely against their vision of their religion and their rule of law. Mm-hmm. So that's, we really focus on getting those high value, sure. you know, opportunity targets that we know the Taliban's going to go after. And there's still a few over there, you know, and those those are the ones that we're still pushing but the State Department in the U.S. has all but shut it down in a lot of cases. I mean, at one point it was, okay, get the Americans out, but then we get an aircraft in and they won't give it dip clearance. Or then they're requiring American passport holders to um, fill out repatriation paperwork. Well, what repatriation paperwork are you filling out? You're a passport holder. That's your, uh-huh. you know, the government I, and I, the administration left those people there to die just don't understand i just don't understand how that was allowed to happen yeah and you know they and they they went after us they went after organizations like ours like glenn beck uh, he was doing the same thing yeah uh, and and 
going through the same ridiculous red tape that was imposed by the administration. Yeah. Our money got tied up. The FBI hit us, had some investigations. We had to get lawyers involved. Fortunately, it was resolved pretty quick, but there were, you know, some feathers ruffled to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. God bless you and all those that did literally the Lord's work and did what our government completely abdicated. So I appreciate the, I, I'm grateful as an American. So thank you, sir. You know, and I, I will say, you know, a lot of it too goes out to thank the people who gave money. You know, I've got some foundations. Um, the Laughlin Foundation has given a huge amount of money. You know, there's other organizations. I just say that that one in particular because I worked with them personally. And I mean, there's a lot of organizations out there and individuals who have given hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars, you know, their own money, company money to get it done and get the football across the line. And, uh, you know, they, they deserve as much as, as much, uh, thanks as, as those who organized it and the people who were pulling them out. So, you know, that's the one part that most people overlook is how you do it. You can't do it without money. And, you know, the supporters are a big deal too. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were a kid, you thought that when you grew up to be an adult, you were going to be a fighter pilot. Yeah. Right? Right? Yep. Okay. So, so I mean, you, you ended up in the military, but did you, at what point did you decide, nah, I don't want to do that? You know, the military, it wasn't a foregone conclusion for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. once I finally got it, you know, I, for me, it, it was a calling at, 9/11. A, at, a time, at 9-11. I got you. Strictly it. And I enlisted. I could have gone as an officer. I didn't. I enlisted. Okay. When I finally got deep down into it and really got into the inner workings of <laughs> the fighter community, I can't and I was like, as cool of a job as it looked, yeah, man, that is the most boring aviation job. Oh, really? On Earth? Oh, really? Yeah. You just sit around waiting, I guess, well, huh? No, those no? guys plan for hours and hours and hours and hours. Go out and fly for three hours, come back and then debrief for hours and hours and hours and hours. I mean, they. Oh, I mean, no. They debrief on what? everything from, from angle to radio calls to. I mean, it. It's impressive. Yeah. But once I finally got stuck into it, um, I decided that I was going to go the helicopter route. Okay, because correct me if I'm wrong. As you described it, there, it almost seems like the fighter pilots are the CPAs of the armed forces. They are. <laughs> Uh, I've never heard. Of they are they they are the rain men of the armed forces. Yes, yeah, okay. I mean, they it's amazing okay. what they can do. And, and obviously I, I worked with two different types of F15s mostly the the E models and the C models. Okay. The, you know, the E models, the strike eagles, those guys, they they briefed and briefed, you know, they had a live mission. The C models, those guys, they they were a lot of fun to work with. Uh the one live mission we got to do was in NATO uh in 2006, I believe. Uh, we did a NATO mission out of Denmark flying over Latvia for the G8 summits, um, keeping oh. the Belarusians and the Russians uh-huh. at bay. Um, and those guys were, you know, they they come in, brief an hour, fly, and then debrief an hour, and they were done. Their, their day was done <laughs> because there's not really an air-to-air war anymore. Uh-huh. But they still had to, you know, you got to train of air superiority. Huh? Uh, so they'd fly a ton. But I realized in my deployments that the helicopter world was where it was at. Okay. And 
put in a package to transfer over to the army, uh, found out my last tour in Afghanistan and I got accepted. And when I got back to my home duty station, I had found out that they had denied my orders. And that's when I got out of the military. Oh boy. I bet. Yep. I, uh. we were in a short, you know, a critical staffed field. And, uh, when they told me, I was like, all right, well consider this my notice. I'm not re-upping. I'm done. And that's when I popped smoke and got out about yeah. seven months later. Uh-huh. I, I don't blame you. And I interrupted you. You you, you shifted your focus to helicopters. Yeah. Then. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you got, have you ever flown in a helicopter? Have I ever flown? You know what? If I did, it was like straight up and straight down like at a fair. You yeah. know what I mean? And yep. So nothing nothing fun. It. Most of my helicopter time has come in combat. And when you are... 150 feet 100 feet off the ground just screaming <laughs> at the treetops mm. and you're working both feet both hands you know on a helicopter it's you know it just it just became more of an exciting i bet you know obviously the speed and the, the drive of the fighters is is cool and the maneuverability but basically skipping your butt off the ground at <laughs> you know 150 200 miles an hour uh and more of a mission i guess in my eyes up close and personal. You have to get a, a license to be a helicopter pilot, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. How how much could I uh, get just a, I don't know, a secondhand helicopter for if I wanted to learn? You're probably looking at 100000 Oh, okay. Well, then, then. If not more. Uh, put that dream to bed. The, okay. the little ones that you see that fly up, take the tour of the city and come back, they're yeah. probably one hundred fifty to okay. 200000 <laughs> for the small bots. All right. All right. So you list your mom as having the biggest impact on your life yep how so you know it, it was just her and i my dad died when i was before my second birthday oh bro i had no and, idea yeah and oh. she, she was tough she was a tough woman uh itty bitty thing <laughs> but hard as nails yeah um stellar athlete in her day was a, a world-class uh snow skier um, and a good hunter from good the hunter. bathroom window yep good hunter <laughs> And just always driven. There was no gray area, so to speak. <laughs> I, I definitely knew if I, I was stepping out of line. Right. And I knew there was consequences. Yeah. You know, and I, I look back now and I, I appreciate, you know, as, as, as a teenager, I was, uh, you know, I rebelled and I was against it. But I look back now and I appreciate it because without the lessons, it, I, I wouldn't be the man I am today mm-hmm. and wouldn't have had the, the, the kind of bedrock that I that was built especially being a new father and you know you know she was not the epitome of today's parents where they're the friends before the parents right she was the parent before the friend Uh uh-huh so well the world needs more parents like that yeah for sure yep all right so you are married to erica yep when and where did you guys meet we met february of 2019 in Newport Beach, California. Okay. I was living behind the uh, red curtain of California for a, for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we met out there about a year and a half later when the shutdowns and COVID craziness. <laughs> You're like, well, we got nothing better to do. Let's get married. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. We, we, we had gotten engaged about 10 months after we met, 11 months after we met. Uh-huh. And then COVID hit. We were going to get married in California. And then obviously California went crazy. And then we decided, why are we here? Yeah. I'm working in Venice Beach, LA. It's crazy. It's taken me two and a half hours 
both ways to work. So five hours oh. a day in a car. Oh no. To go 20 miles. No way to live. No. And COVID hit. I got thrown out of my office. The office got locked down because I was in my office, the only one. And middle of the night, she rolled over and said, let's move to Dallas. All right. And connections here or, or just, uh, you know, one of my good military buddies uh-huh. um, is a Johnson County lawyer just south of Fort Worth. Okay. So, and it, I'd always said, you know, one day I'm going to end up in Texas and it just played out. Why not now? Yeah. Very why not cool. now? You have two kids. Well, full disclosure, we're recording this and you have one son who is just at a year old and another one on the way who, yep. by the time this thing posts, you'll probably be a, a, a dad two times over. Yeah. Greatest names for kids. Please tell the audience uh, your two sons' names. So, uh, son number one is <laughs> Tavish Fife, and son number two is going to be Lachlan Strath. That's awesome, dude. These and, guys, yeah. they're going to be tough kids. Well, you know, we stuck. I, I've got a very traditional Scottish name. My whole family's from Scotland. My uh-huh. wife's family's from Scotland. So we wanted to do something a little different, you know, not the traditional, the Bodies and the, the hipster names and... We went with uh, like very strong Scottish names, but we took the middle name a step a little bit different. Uh, so part of our family is from Fife, which is a region of Scotland. Okay. So Tavish Fife. And then most of my family is from Glasgow, which is in Strathclyde, County Strathclyde. I love how so, deep these names are. It's yeah. so cool. So we wanted to really do a tie-in of the, the, the regionality and then like a good traditional uh, strong name because if nothing else they will always know where their family history is from geographically just by referencing their names yeah i love that exactly i think that is so cool what i'm doing right now is i'm googling and i'm trying to uh trying to figure out how how tall is a rhodesian ridgeback your your dog so mine's a mix she's probably okay. just above my knee oh okay so she's probably oh all right 30 30 okay. inches why was i thinking that those were really really they're gigantic big, you know the males average about the females average between 60 and 80 the males average between 80 and 120 uh-huh. and they are the males are quite tall mid-thigh okay a big yeah big dog uh darla now is 65 pounds not quite a year old and she's yeah probably right to my knee maybe just a little above so okay. but they're a, they're a great breed of dog yeah yeah uh, i've seen when i got your email i was looking up videos of them and they're just they just seem like fun like, they are you know, like like almost like uh i don't know having a an extra kid right but um obviously a big extra kid <laughs> exactly and that's I, at times i thought erica was going to murder me when we got the dog oh no um because it was having a three-month-old puppy and a three-month-old baby Ooh. and i was traveling and back and forth oh. uh yeah there was times that i i thought <laughs> darla's got it together though right yeah, she does now okay yeah, good good yeah, good she does now seriously i i'm with you i understand i mean when you have the puppy there's that there's that break-in period and we had that with our dog. In fact, we didn't adopt him until he was probably, because they found him on the street, so he was probably about six months old or so. And he was a menace. I had just planted these little saplings all around the yard. All of them pulled out chew toys. 
we had a recliner on the back patio because we're white trash. And <laughs> and and even more so after Tanner got a hold of it and just destroyed it. He tried to dig under the fence. I mean, right? Okay. But it's just like parenting. If you take the time yep. and you discipline them and you correct them and show them what's right and what's wrong, my gosh, he is the greatest animal by far that I've ever been the owner of. And I'm going to just go ahead and brag and say that I've ever met. But, you know, just it's it's amazing the transformation you can make in a, in a dog, especially, oh, to yeah. go from destroyer of things to just guardian and listens to everything you say just like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think this one will be a guardian. This okay. dog has, <laughs> unfortunately, she has she has zero bite in her, which is hilarious. Well, that's what the Glock's for. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> or, or the or the 12-gauge or buckshot. <laughs> uh, you know, but she's, it, it's funny. We've got her broke of almost all her bad habits. Mm-hmm. The one thing... I've not been able to break her of, and it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. We built our house a, almost a year ago to the day here in Texas, and um, we've got a tree in our backyard. Well, all the lower branches are now gone, and they're gone as high as she could jump <laughs> because she would hang oh, no. from the branch until she broke it off. She has, she's a she sets goals. Yeah, she, she's a, she's an overachiever. <laughs> But now there's no branches for her to break off because they're too high. Oh, so no. Well, please tell me before you lost the last branch, you got video or pictures of this. No, well, you never caught her. N- never caught her. Oh no, not with a camera. But yeah. there's still vi- there's still evidence on the tree where the bark is gone and the, <laughs> like sapling branches are broke off. <laughs> that is awesome. She sounds like a character, man. Um, you currently play ice hockey, which we need to talk about. But the reason you play ice hockey now is because you needed to transition to a different sport after you played 35 years of rugby. Yeah. That's got to do wonders for the body. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it was time. Yeah. You know, broken leg, oh. broken noses, some other injuries. Uh, great sport. The camaraderie. You know what I tell you? I, I didn't get as injured as much playing rugby as I did football. Everyone says this. You know, it's a lot. It's more controlled. Yeah. And you feel you ha- invincible with the pads and the helmet, right? Exactly. And you take those away, you start to realize what your body can and can't do real quick. Uh-huh. Especially with your head. Yes. Um, and yeah, I needed something. I was living in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and had never, never put skates on my feet before in my life. And everybody's like... You should come out and play hockey with us. Oh no! My very first hockey game was the very first time I ever skated. What? Yeah, I looked. What? I looked like a baby giraffe trying to walk. So. How long did it take you before you felt confident out there? About a year. And they were cool with having you out there. Not, I mean, no offense, but it's like, okay, here's the guy who can't skate. Did they? I, they just, I wasn't the only one. Oh wow! They it, just needed bodies. Huh? Well, and it's <laughs> it was great because every you know they're obviously playing different levels of leagues and stuff okay. like that. Yeah. But it was a lower level league that had a couple of a good players and then kind of medium and then people like myself, like I said, who looked like baby giraffes trying to walk. Yeah. So how many times did you use the uh, the boards to stop you? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so how are you at skating now? A lot better. Okay. You know. When did this start, this ice hockey stuff? Uh, what year are we in? 2022, mm-hmm. uh, 2017. So. Okay. Yeah. And it's, 
you know, for you, man. very, very similar to rugby, great camaraderie. You know, I've, I travel now with, with hockey, go to different tournaments. I've played That's cool, man. Went out in February, played in a uh, tournament out in Anaheim in, I think in February as well. January, February, went up and played in a disabled vets tournament up in St. Louis, which had a bunch of different uh, disabled vet teams from all over the country come in. So it was a, uh, it's, it's been a great transition. You know, I still get the competitiveness. I still get a bit of the physicality and uh, obviously the, the fitness and the, the camaraderie. That's cool that you had a place to learn on the fly. Yeah. You know, as opposed to just, yeah, I'll learn, you know, during open skate and hope that, you know, I can get on with a team somehow. But that's really cool that you had that availability there. Yeah. Let's see here. Okay. This is, this is an impossible question. But if you could keep five possessions, what would they be? Well, you managed to answer it. I appreciate this. And, and, and people go different ways on this. Some people go sentimental. And some people go like, okay, am I, am I trying to survive? I'm on a deserted island. And I've never specified this. So I love how you went very practical here with your truck, a tent, a gun, your dog, and ammunition. I mean, that's, you're ready for, for well, I was about to say, I was about to say, you're ready for Armageddon. <laughs> Hell no, you're ready for what's just a normal day in 2022, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, you never know what's going to pop up next. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's good. So... Red Dirt Country, I'm familiar with that. I never really listened to it, but how many different versions of country music would you say there probably are? God. <laughs> Nowadays, I mean, you got, you got your old school, your Hank Williams. Yeah. You kind of got your our age, the 80s, 90s, your your kind of ballad country, the Garth Brooks. Okay, yeah. You know, And that's my gateway yeah, to country, really. Mine too. Uh-huh. And, you know, uh, then you got... What today, I don't even consider it country. It's just pop music. Sure. Um, and then for me, I like the I like the Red Dirt Country because it's kind of more Southern rock. It's got uh-huh. a little bit of the bad. It's a storytelling, a folky, kind of more rough around the edges type. All right. So if there's hope for someone like me that isn't a big country music fan, but I can dabble here and there. Uh, what's a Red Dirt Country artist that you think I need to be familiar with that I should try out? Cody Jinx. Okay. Local Fort Worth boy. Okay. Write it down. Write it down. Check it out. And, he, and he, he's a quite interesting backstory because he started as a metal artist. What? How do you, yeah. spell, how do you spell his name? Uh, C- Cody, C-O-D-Y, uh-huh. J-I-N-K-S. Okay, cool. Oh, wow. This needs to be metal? Yeah. Oh, I need to know how he transitioned. Maybe I'll get him behind this microphone. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron <laughs> Lewis. He's the lead singer from Stained. Okay. I got it. Yes. Yes. Somebody's told me about him. Okay. That is fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. Is he having as much success in country as he did with Stained? You know, I think so. Okay. He's not, you know, he doesn't release a ton of albums. You know, it's a song here, a song there, but I know when he comes down here to Billy Bob's, you can't get a ticket. Wow. So, I mean, that's a huge uh, venue for kind of country music all around. So, um, you know, trying to get a ticket to one of his shows is near impossible. The last book you read, The Dichotomy of Leadership. Sell me on that book. Man, it's... You got to kind of tie uh, all their books together. Okay. And it's just really taking charge, you know, and knowing who you are as a leader, your faults, and, you know, your, your strengths and your opportunities. Mm-hmm but also 
playing to the strengths and the opportunities of those around you and, and building your team off of that. Hmm. You know, you can put 10 people in a room that have this, the same strengths, but if you have the same weak, weaknesses, you're dead in the water. So you have to build your team hmm. with what you need as far as strengths to cover your weaknesses. Is that basically what you're embarking on right now? in stepping out and starting your own thing in a way in a way that's kind of where um i've always taken my leader i know very well where my my weaknesses are Hmm. that you know no matter how hard i work on them they're still my weaknesses right um and that's how i've always hired you know and you always hire people better than you Hmm. so um but mine was more of my, my my new venture my new step out has been more of instead of doing it the same old, same old over and over again, let's take the good from the industry and keep going with it, but let's improve on what the industry continues to do poorly. Mm. And there's a lot, I mean, the vacation rental, short-term management, property management, there's a lot of things that we continue to do poorly that are very easy fixes, but nobody just jumps on it. Mm. So my goal is to branch out, do some property investment, and tie it into some management opportunities as well, um, kind of nationwide. How would people find what it is that you do? Like, where would people cross paths with what you do? So a lot of it is, you know, the the biggest point to, and what people know it as now is they they point to a listing. They're like, oh, you you do Airbnbs, uh, <laughs> and that's what short term rentals are. All Airbnb is is a listing site. All that's right, it. All you right. just list. It's, it's just a listing site. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's a whole layer of smoke and mirrors behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, getting the houses set up, you know, getting the people into the homes, the marketing, the, you know, the customer service, the guest retention, owner retention, real estate development, things like that that fall in behind that. Hmm. Um, but, you know, the big ones, Verbo, you know, Vacasa now has come in and bought just about everybody oh, wow. in the industry, um, but they still do it the wrong way. They came out and went public a few months ago and had a $4 billion valuation and have never made a dime. Their biggest enemy is themselves because hmm. they just go in and buy with no intent to retain. Huh. So yeah, you can grow if you keep buying if you and lose at the same time. But yeah. where I want to do it, I want to start, obviously I'm starting grassroots, you know, grow one market, move into the next and really focus on the retention and really giving people not necessarily a new opportunity to travel, but a lasting memory and potential for further travel, which, you know, a lot of people spend all their money to make one trip. I don't want that. Yeah. You know, yeah, I want people to make money, but I also want people, I want to hit a group too that kind of encompasses both. You know, I want to, I want to hit the upper echelon of travel, mm-hmm. but I also want to get the the moms and pops and the the small families that, you know, maybe only make a hundred thousand a year combined, but I still want to be able to send them on vacation and host their vacations at a reasonable cost. You know, where it doesn't put them out and it doesn't put the uh, the the owner of the property out as well, where right. there's a where's, where there's a good middle ground, and be able to take care of them on both sides. You know, that's great, dude. You know, you always treat the guests equally, but equally maybe different based on what they rent. Mm. So, you know, I want I want them to have an equal experience based on what they're looking for. Understood. Your favorite book is The Places in Between by Rory Stewart. What is that about? 
it, it's kind of a, t- a, a threefold story. Um, so the book itself, Rory Stewart is the guy's an, enig- an enigma of a man. He's a small Scotsman who grew up as um, kind of a blue blood, I guess. Father was a diplomat and mother was an educator. Um, so he was very privileged um, individual growing up. With that being said, when the war in Iraq kicked off, he was walking the Silk Route. And he was in, detained in Iran in Iran when the war kicked off, and they finally let him go. But basically, every day along his journey through Iran or through Afghanistan, through the Central Route, which is where all the fighting, Taliban, uh, everybody's like, you're going to die tomorrow. You're going to die tomorrow. And he made it all the way through, through Kabul, um, through um, into Pakistan, through the Khyber Pass. And uh, that's kind of where the story ends. Uh-huh. But he picks it up in a second book, um, completely different, called The Prince of Tides. Well, obviously, we know the British were big allies to ours in Iraq. Well, he was the regional governor, provincial governor in Iraq for the Brits. And the Prince of Marshes is how he got in with the one person who he had to get in, in with down in the, I think it was Blood region. Um, I could be wrong. Uh, where the Brits had control mm. to stop the fighting. And that's where he did it. And he made the relationships and was able to draw this individual out of the marshes and ended the fighting in that region. Um, so the two books combined really paint a yeah. story of who, it's a very interesting, wow. very interesting gentleman. Okay. And he's just this little tiny Scotsman. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, I the, the only reason I found it, I was looking for a book about Afghanistan before I went over, uh-huh. and that popped up, and I think I read it in a day. So, stuff, huh? yeah. So let's stay over there and visit the most scared that you've ever been, which is Operation Rock Avalanche in Afghanistan. Yep. Tell us what happened, man. Um, That was a rough... There were some planning issues from the get-go that um, were really kind of set the mission up. The mission was planned to be set up for success. The leadership of the Michigan, of the mission, egos got in the way and produced it for failure. Mm-hmm. Um, prime example for what I do, weather. Um, we're briefed in, you know, we brief everything from illumination, uh, if you're flying in under night vision goggles, to wind pattern, uh, wind direction and speed. Well, with a helicopter, that makes a world of difference. If you're downwind of a helicopter, you're going to hear it from miles away. And if you fly into illumination, you'll what they call white out the pilots. They can't see because the moon is too bright into the night vision goggles. Oh, boy. So Things that people like me never even think about. Exactly, exactly. And you don't think about it unless you're in that situation and it's part of what you do. It just becomes second nature. Well, I'm briefing and I tell the aviation lead, hey, we need to change. We need to come in from this direction. Illumination's here and wind direction is here. Well, the pilots, uh, the colonel's exact words to me were, you worry about forecasting the weather, I'll worry about directing the mission. Well, at that point, I was also going in on the mission. So I briefed and then went in on the helicopters to get out and support the infantry. Um, We knew before we hit the ground that they knew we were there and that we were coming 
because ICOM chatter, which is we can hear them going back and forth on their cell phones with our technologies. Mm. Um, but it got so bad uh, day one, day two, that they were popping up in closer distance than you and I are sitting apart in this room and shooting our guys at point blank range. Oh. They knew exactly where we were. Um, uh, Sal Gianta earned a Medal of Honor out of it. We ended up finishing a mission and walking our way out, but it was at a pretty substantial loss. And a couple of CNN reporters got thrown out. They, go figure, changed what the mission scope was and made it look a lot different than what it was on news, and they were asked to leave the theater. Um, but it was it was rough. I mean, they were popping up, shooting guys, and then trying to drag the bodies out and steal the equipment. And there was guys that they dragged that we couldn't get. Oh, God. Yeah, so that to me is my my stick out mission because there was minor changes that could have been made right not washing out the hill we almost had one helicopter the first helicopter flew and almost flew into the side of the mountain because he whited out and then by that point we had so many helicopters in the air coming from the wrong direction i mean they knew we were coming Mm -hmm. so and you list combat as one of the biggest turning points in your life which i can't imagine and the other being fatherhood which obviously is a massive life changer. Where do you see this chaotic world of madness that we are leaving behind for our children? Where do you see things ending up? You know, if we can, we continue on the trajectory we're on, we are back in 1920s, 1930s, kind of another great reset. I And I hate to use that term, yeah, yeah. but when you look at where we are as a society, people are have been fat and happy and everything's been given. And, you know, weak, weak men make for hard times, hard men make for good times. Mm-hmm. And we are, and it, it's around the world. It's not just the United States, you know, and it's not just one party. It's both, it's both parties here and, you know, the different parties around the world. We have become weak as humans. And those who have remained strong are taking control. And the chaos, you know, I pray it doesn't happen, but uh, we're on the doorstep of either somebody stepping in or the alliance is building for something greater. And my fear is if we get into another world war, it doesn't come out the way the past two did. Mm. And our focus as a military, sadly, isn't on the mission anymore. We've seen that play out. It's about whatever the political flavor of the, the month is to get funding and to keep people happy where... That's not what the other countries are focusing on. Yeah. You know, they're focusing on the fight and the win mm-hmm. at, at, at any cost. And we aren't. Yeah. I think it, if, if we get that under control, we set ourselves up for a better future for the youth. If we don't get it under control and start putting some of the right people in the right places, we're in trouble. Yeah. And we're in trouble as a, as a whole, not just, you know, us speaking about the United States, I think the world is in trouble as a whole because the alliances are starting to form and the the militaries are starting to thunder up and Mm -hmm. 
there, there's got there's going to be a reset. Is it a peaceful reset or not? That's right now is the question. Right. Let's switch gears back to rugby real quick. <laughs> you played professional rugby. I did. So was that in Australia? I did a little bit in Australia and most of my time in England. Okay. So is there an Ian Patterson rugby trading card out there? Somewhere? No. They don't make those for rugby. No. What's up with that? We, we we didn't even make we didn't even make enough money to hardly get by. All right, had to ask. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we still we still worked other jobs. Just I was in the military, mm-hmm. and I'd I'd only get released from military service if I got called into the A side. So I would work in the military, do show up to practice. If I got called into the A side, they'd give me a week off to go train and do whatever I needed to do. As soon as I got dropped to the a, from the A side, I was right back into the <laughs> no, office okay. in the military. All right, I'm all over the map here because um, earlier when you got here, we were walking down to you know get some water. By the way, you need another water? I'm good. Okay, Thanks. cool. So we were walking down there to get you a bottle of water, and we were talking about the travel industry and and kind of what you do. Tell us a story about uh, trying to rent out uh, Walt Disney's place in oh so at the time i was working for wyndham vacation rentals and i was i was running a company in palm springs california called vacation palm springs and we had a home that used to be the vacation home of walt disney himself (laughs) so he he owned it or he rented it? no he owned it he owned he built the house he owned the house and the disney family sold it to a private family okay well, the other family wanted to turn it over. It was an investment property. They wanted to bring it on to our rental program. And for months, we tried everything that we could to get it onto the rental program. But it was one fight against another with the Disney Corporation because Walt, throughout the house, had drawn Mickey Mouse looking over baseboards. <laughs> You know, depictions of Disney characters yeah. all in the closets and on walls. It's like history. It is. And it's all it was all signed by Walt. And we had come <laughs> up with a way instead of r- ripping the sheetrock out and, you know, preserving it of putting, you know, nice glass covers and preserving the art so people oh, couldn't cool. damage it. But it just became a fight with Disney, even though technically they owned the rights because they owned the home um, marketing it and. uh presenting it out there because it was it was still called the Walt Disney home um, because mm. it's yeah so I would love to stay at a place where I could take pictures in front of Mickey Mouse drawings on the wall I mean that would have been that would have been a draw in of itself exactly it would have been a huge game changer man yeah I mean and that's a lot of those houses they were still named after their celebrity owners yeah, okay, you yeah. You know, the Gene Autry home. Oh, nice. You know, the Firestone Estate. A lot of our homes, they, they still maintain who the original owner of the home was. So whatever happened to that house then? We just, there, we couldn't work with it, unfortunately. Yeah. it uh, We tried, we did everything mm-hmm. we could, but the forces that be at Disney, it just, mm-hmm. it was going to be, be a fight for the owners, and they just decided, you know what, it's not worth it. Sure, okay. So good or bad, any stories with celebrities uh that you've crossed paths with that you'd care to share here because i know you've crossed paths with a lot of celebrities (laughs) probably my favorite one was wiz khalifa oh the rapper guy yeah yeah okay Uh uh-huh who i had no idea who he was right right i didn't either the first time i heard his name so (laughs) i had i'm weeks into california coachella is about to kick off and airbnb puts him into one of the houses and we get a photographer that shows up. Well, in that part of the country, they have very strict 
um, rules and regulations about professional photography, especially if you're a celebrity. That house in particular, if you wanted to shoot it for photography, the fee was 90000 to the owner to shoot the house. What? Yeah. California is gone. Well, it was, I mean, th- because it was a very particular home. So you were getting the architecture of the home. It was the Firestone estate. Got it. Oh, okay. So, but the city also <laughs> took a piece of it as well. Um, so the Airbnb rented the home for them. That was their donation, I guess, to the Coachella and to get their name out there, their marketing. They put Wiz Khalifa up in his house. Well, we wouldn't let the photographer in. So I have to step back. At the time I was bodybuilding. <laughs> oh, no. I had just moved from the mountains of Colorado weeks earlier. So I show up at the house in jeans, cowboy boots, a cowboy hat. Looking like I'm straight off the Western Range. <laughs> and I have no idea who this gentleman is. Okay. So I don't know what these, they just gave me a little bit of the situation. I get there and there's security everywhere in management. And we're sitting at the table out by the pool and this kid is just up and down one side of me and I'm trying to explain the situation. And he's probably six foot and he's tall, but he's at the time he was probably 125 pounds soaking wet. Mm-hmm. I was about 260. <laughs> Um, and his, it was me, his manager and his security and whoever else, his family and all that around the pool. Um, and he jumped up and all of a sudden goes, I'll just, I ought to just kick your ass. I said, sir, I don't know who you are and you don't know who I am. I said, but in a past life, I can make you disappear and your family won't know you're gone. <laughs> I said, so you can either follow the rules <laughs> You can either follow the rules and do it the right way, or you can go back to Los Angeles and drive the three to four hours that it's going to take you to hit your set. I don't care, but you're not going to do it this way. Mm-hmm. And his manager kind of stopped and calmed him down a little bit. And they're like, are we, are we clear or are we going to have to move this along? And he settled down and uh, we we're leaving and the manager's like, so what'd you used to do for a living? And I was like, ah, I used to be in the military <laughs> and worked with some guys. And he goes, oh, but you know, then we turned around and this house is about 250,000 a week to rent. Whoa. And, uh, they ended up staying almost 12 hours past. So I think we got another day out of them, but on the flip side, uh-huh. on the flip side, uh-huh. um, once again, I get a call it's, they're like, Hey, we need to do a, a handoff an in-person handoff to this guest. And it was maybe the next day or the same day. They're like, and it's at PGA West out in La Quinta, big, beautiful golf cars, big, yeah. beautiful homes. And it was Lady Gaga. And <laughs> really didn't know who she was. If I saw her walking by her, would right. have no idea who she was. Right. And go over to the house, do a handoff. Super, super friendly. Mm. Really nice. Cool. And ended up uh, having to have one of my managers come pick me up because we had a few too many bottles of wine sitting on the couch. <laughs> so oh, that's funny. Yeah, so I've had a couple of good stories, um, you know, but for the most part, you know, the, the, the minimal, I've had minimal interaction, uh, thankfully. Uh, Ricky Gervais had a funny, funny interaction with Ricky Gervais in a, in a bar in England just after I'd gotten back from Iraq <laughs> the first time and uh, it was kind of a funny interaction with him. Ended up being a good guy and, uh, everything you expect Ricky Gervais to be. Seems like, yeah. Yeah. It's cool. So, it's good to hear, man. Yeah. Um, if you could go back in history, you'd like to meet William Wallace. Once again, a play on my Scottish history. Uh-huh. How uh, accurate is the Mel Gibson movie? Um, Braveheart. Not 
fully accurate. Uh-huh. It, it, you know, it was more, they say, Robert the Bruce that led the fight. He was a fringe <laughs> fighter. Yeah. That, you know, it was more the skirmishes. He did lead some big battles. But, I mean, the ultimate, you know, stick it to the big. Yeah. Big military type situation. So, uh, you know, and, and just the drive and... I, I study a lot of being Scottish, a lot of Scottish history, and uh, my our Scottish clan has ties to his Scottish clan and mm. his relationships down the line. Oh, cool! So, it, it, to me, I just think that that portion of history, because it was so hard yeah. and such a a tough time, I can't imagine yeah. living in another era like that. No, and and <laughs> every man back there was hard, but to be so hard. That centuries later, you're still remembering. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good point. Very good point. So, and what, like, the drive and the mentality back then, which we don't have today. Yeah. Well, sounds like we may uh, we may get a taste of it soon, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully yes. not. Yeah, that's, uh, okay. You list losing your first executive job as your most embarrassing moment. How so? You know... <laughs> It's a hard pill to swallow. You've worked so hard to get to that point. And at that point, I had never, I had never had like true failure. Hmm. And even though I did some great things, it really made me step outside of my own skin and see where do I need to make major improvements. Um, and the business was well, and there were some things that were going well. But I have a tendency to really dig my heels in for what I feel is right. And what's right right now may not be right in the long run. Hmm. And it cost me. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been uh, nominated for uh, Denver Times CEO of the year in Colorado the same year. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it was a big, you know, it was a gut check. Huh. And then getting a notice that, hey, we're not retaining you for, you know, the coming year from the board was was tough. Yeah. And I really had to step back and, you know, look and, you know, I, what it boiled down to is I protected my people and I protected some locals, you know, from a tax hike in Steamboat Springs. Hmm. But did I really protect them because like the mountain was fighting against me uh, because I wouldn't go along with the mountains narrative of bringing raising the taxes to bring more flights in and things like that. And maybe it would have worked, hmm. you know, in the long run, but maybe done things. Yeah. I w- made it, maybe it would have made a couple of different relationship uh, calls on conversations and maybe not have been so steadfast mm-hmm. in not raising taxes on, you know, the thing that people don't realize. Yeah. Steamboat, Aspen Vale, they're beautiful places. But the majority of the people that work there are making twelve to fifteen dollars an hour. Mm. Guys our age live in four to five guys in a one to two bedroom apartment, if not more. And that's no way to live. Yeah. And then you just there were I want to say there were eighteen tax initiatives on the ballot for the town that year. Eighteen for a town of ten thousand people. Wow. You just can't do that to people. Yeah. And it you know, and you know, a few other decisions I would have made. I lost a lost a big marquee property, which was going before I took over, but it fell out on my my watch. So you lose a house that brings in a half a million plus a year. Yeah. So yeah, it made me collect my thoughts, 
sit back and, you know, one hiring practices, two decision making, and three direction and narrative. Hmm. You know, as as a senior leader of an organization. Wow. Now, I'm with you on a regret here, not being frugal. I can totally identify with that. I think that that mindset of not being frugal enough. Yeah. You know, I wish in the younger years I'd have saved more Me too. versus, and I'm finally, now that I've got a family, like, all right, I got to do this instead of going, you know what? Let's go here. Let's go there. I've got the money. Can't die with it. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> and I, I wish I would have been a little bit more uh, rest- restrained yeah, yeah. prior to having a family. Yeah. I but got you. I've got the experiences. I won't be the old guy sitting on the porch. Uh-huh. You know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, but you didn't. Uh-huh. Okay. You know, so, so I, I do trade-offs. have that. Yeah. Life is just a series of trade-offs. Exactly. And let's talk about your bucket list, which I think this is just such a great goal, is you want to be able to play a sport with both of your boys when they're of age. That's great, man. You, you Are you talking about something as simple as basketball in the driveway or are you talking about maybe the three of you guys all on the same hockey team that's that's exactly Uh it you know uh being on the same you know on ice together yeah uh or if they decide to play rugby or something like that you know i had a good friend of mine like family to me in england a guy named noel woodgate we were playing at a club called shelford rugby club in cambridge england uh it was my main club that i played with over there and when he got to play with his son will at the senior level uh, Noah was in his 50s Will was 17, 18 you know like what a great ex- especially at such a tough sport to be able to take the field with your kid yeah you know <laughs> mid 50s taking the field with your 18 year old kid at the same How time cool man I'll be probably in my 60s <laughs> but well you take care of yourself so you'll, yeah. you'll still be around that's yep. cool man yeah so I think that's a you'll you know able. it's a huge thing yeah. to be able to, to pass. I always tell my, my wife I was like I'll never let the kids win until they can beat me. So that's exactly how I was. I mean, just just uh, in the driveway playing street hockey. You yeah. know, it's like I'm not letting you score on me. Yep. And if you do score on me, then you can have dessert tonight after supper. If you don't, then you get to watch me eat all y'all's dessert. Exactly. That's how exactly. I do it. Don't give the kids anything. Yeah. Make let them, them earn it. Let them earn it. Yes. So. Your favorite comfort food is chicken pot pie. I got to say, it's either scorching hot or ice cold. There's no happy medium with me. I, I love chicken pot pie in theory, but, you know, I just never seem to, to try to consume it at the right temperature, man. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So funny. So it's not just me. No. So funny story. Back to England. I'm in the military. Mm-hmm. I'm close to getting out. I've probably got a few months left in. And, you know, the pies, the meat pies in the yeah. UK are just, yes. it's what they do. Yeah. So I buy one from the baker. I put it in my oven and I got in trouble for it. You're mm. going to laugh when I tell you this. Oh, I pull no. it out of the oven and the pan on the bottom broke and the scorching hot chicken pot pie spilled over my foot. No. Oh. And I was cooking with flip flops on. Oh, no, no. I so, will not laugh at this because this is exactly the kind of stuff I do to myself. No, it's funny. It, it gets funnier. <laughs> oh, no. So I go to the hospital because oh, I have like no. second and third degree yeah. burns between my toes from chicken pot pie. Oh. I get a letter of reprimand for cooking without shoes on in my own home. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? They're oh, like, oh. well, you you damaged a duty. So you've basically taken yourself out of duty. And I was like... 
Fair enough. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's do you have that letter of reprimand and does it get specific with the injury and what happened and stuff? I may be able to pull it up. In oh, my, that needs to be framed. Piff. If it yeah. says burns in your toes or what Yeah. No, it, it was pretty funny though. And uh yeah, so I had to wear a flip flop and a boot to work for about three weeks until the burn se- the wound sealed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I love this. Uh, currently in your Amazon cart, weightlifting supplements. I, I don't doubt that. I got a question. What's um, what's your uh, bench press? What can you do? There? Oh God, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't even look. I just say throw another weight on there. I don't think I have done a lift for max mm. in a decade. Oh wow! You know, I go in. I know exactly what I'm going to do, and I haven't done flat bench like your normal traditional. Uh huh. But. I I train mostly with incline barbell. If I do, that would be the closest thing. Okay. And I'm I usually do sets of ten to fifteen with two hundred and seventy five pounds. I mean, it sounds like you could just say, "Hey, surprise me! Just put something on there, and you know, whatever." I would probably be in a, <laughs> the three fifty cool. range uh, if I'm lucky. You're a big uh, user of Twitter. Yep. I don't know if you can identify with this, but. I probably spend way too much time on Twitter. It's great for show prep for my day job, Pat Gray Unleashed on the Blaze. But man, that place is such a cesspool. It's but but it's like I can't put it down, man. It it is. <laughs> it's like watching a car wreck. You know, yeah. you try to look away, but you can't. I know. And I try. You know, I do get serious, obviously, from time to time. But yeah. I try. I try to keep it very light and jovial with mm-hmm. with with garbage posts as well. Sure. You know, it, and it's it is the most frustrating yet one of the most mm-hmm. um, rewarding sites too yeah. because you meet great people, right. um, groups. You know, it, it it does get to be a bit of a sounding board at times, mm-hmm. which is tough. And you know, as Americans, I think that's something we need to get away from. Yeah. You know, we're, we're too much to, to the right, too much to the left. There's nobody really left that wants to hear the middle anymore. Mm-hmm. And anybody who does venture into the middle gets absolutely excoriated from both sides. Yeah, that's right. You know, and that's they right. say it's a loyalty issue, but it's, you know, it's more of a common sense issue. Yeah. And that's the best place to find you, by the way, on social media, right? That's the only it's place. It's the only place, okay. really. Ringo Rugger one. Okay. Yeah, I try to stay off of most of the other stuff. All right. I think we've covered everything, huh? I mean, anything you could think of we need to uh, discuss here, Ian I, Patterson? I think we're good, man. All right, man. Thanks for coming in. Ian Patterson, my guest here on At The Mic. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me. It was great getting to unpack Ian's story today with you and i'm so glad that he made the time for us i'm such a great guy and uh, i'm just uh, so grateful to know him now next week i'm going to sit down with a blaze tv co-worker of mine michaela hedrick she actually writes many of the words that you hear talk host glenn beck read on the air yeah we're gonna hear about that and her story it's gonna be a good conversation a week from now if you get a chance to subscribe to this podcast over at youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith, that's youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith. I would be so grateful. It's available there. Also, as you well know, it's also available when you head to at the mic show.com. If you're able to rate the show five stars on Apple iTunes or Spotify, as always, we would be so grateful. We'd definitely be grateful if you would share this show with your friends and family. Well, until we meet here next time, I hope you'll go be free, and thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemicshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect.